Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So it's been a while since we've been in the chronological Gospels. Uh, this is lesson 69. I didn't know how long this would take me. Matt, so good to see you. I just said you slip in there. Um, what a blessing. It's been a while since we've been here back at the beginning of November, actually. Then we got into Thanksgiving and Christmas and just we get to December. We turn it over to Christmas messages um, I gave a little bit of my own story last Sunday, and I don't know who the, uh, I was looking on YouTube, and it's not necessarily like a place where we generate a lot of views, but I was think, thinking, who's all these people that's already watched this message? That was from Wednesday night. I don't know about Sunday. Uh, and it surprises me. So God uses the his word going out from this place in different ways, and uh it's been a while, so I want to just give us a recap. We are coming toward the end of what theologians have kind of described as the year of opposition. It began back in John chapter 6, where we read of a Passover. And so John's gospel gives us the three-plus years of Jesus' ministry because John consti- consistently identifies the Passover feast that Jesus would attend. And then there's one mysterious one. He talks about a feast that Jesus and his disciples went up to Jerusalem. It is assumed that John is also referring to a Passover feast there, but he does not name it. So we have three Passover feasts named by John and one that is possibly a Passover. So it gives us, when we talk about the three plus years of ministry, it gives us kind of that layout But there in John chapter 6, verse 66, I love this because we know 666 is the number of the beast from the book of Revelation. And here we have in John's gospel, and this was, as I said earlier, chapters and verses were not inspired, but perhaps whoever putting this one together thought this would be a good number for this. Because it says, from that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. There was a turning away from Jesus. This was just a day or two after the feeding of the 5,000. And this kind of marks the beginning of the year of opposition. Now, we are in our chronological journey coming to the close of that year. Jesus has already left his home base in Capernaum. He has made his way and through the other gospels, through Samaria. Now he, we will discover, is in a location where John the Baptist was baptizing at the first. So he's near Jerusalem, but he's not yet entered into Jerusalem. But he's close, close enough from those in Jerusalem could go and, and challenge him and uh, hear him teach and be healed by him, but especially the enemies as they continue to challenge him during this year of opposition, which would come to its height, obviously, with the death of Jesus on the cross. 
before he arrives there in Jerusalem, he continues to teach, he continues to preach about the kingdom of God, and he heals those who come to him. Today we're going to look at a message that I entitled, All Things Are Possible With God, and we're going to begin, and we are in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so they're kind of go together. They mesh together very well in the notes I've given you. I've uh, given you the notes that show you where, though we are in our first point, focusing on the leaving cleave from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 and 12. We also see that it's found in Mark's gospel. And then our second point, Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, we're going to look at it from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, because I love Mark's account of this interaction with Jesus and this young man. But it's also found in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And then because I haven't given Luke any time, we're going to go over to Luke 18, verses 24 through 30, which Matthew and Mark also talk about. But we'll have that all things are possible with God. That really comes right off what happened with Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler and the disciples seeing that. They question Jesus about salvation. And so we're going to pick up. Now in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to go ahead and read the context for us. I titled this section, Leave and Cleave. That cleave, by the way, comes from the old King James. It's just stuck in my head and I like it. And uh, I'm going to use it, even though the new King James doesn't use that term. Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished saying these things, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read, He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if... Such is the case of a man with his wife. It's better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so we have here... Again, the disciples responding to the interaction here between Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples questioning, hearing the teaching 
of Jesus at this time. And so we have in verses 1 and 2 that the teaching ministry and the healing ministry of Jesus continues. And it tells us as he departed from Galilee, he's in Judea now. He's near, not really too far from Jerusalem at this point. But he's in that area where John was baptizing at the first. John 10.40 tells us this. So he's in that area east of the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing at the first, John 10, 40. Multitudes were gathering to him, not only because uh, they were following Jesus, yes, but they were all making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this was the time of year when many would gather. And according to Josephus, a Jewish historian that lived at the time of Christ, uh, he recorded at one point up to two million people gathering in Jerusalem for Passover. He actually recorded the number of the lambs that they killed at that particular Passover, which was 120,000, I believe. And from that, we get the number of about two million people gathering for the Passover. And so... A lot of people moving about and Jesus teaching, the people coming to him. Yes, because he's Jesus. Yes, because he's healing them. And he continues to do that. And that's what he's been doing for the three plus years of his ministry. Matthew 4.23 just gives us that work of Jesus where it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This is what Jesus did. He taught, he preached, and he healed. And sometimes people have different ministries by the Holy Spirit. Some have a teaching ministry. Some have a preaching ministry. Some have a combination of the both. Some may have a healing ministry. But whatever that ministry the Lord gives us, that's what we should be actively pursuing to fulfill the Lord's purpose in our lives. Some, it might be the gift of evangelism, or maybe it's a a gift of service in the church. Whatever that ministry might be, we should be striving to pursue those things, and it's for our betterment, but also for the betterment of the body of Christ as well. So he's there, he's doing ministry, and the enemies come, the Pharisees come to test him, And again, they ask the question, is it lawful, verse 3, for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So one of the commentators, I thought this was interesting, and I'd never thought about it before, but connecting this to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing at the first and knowing what happened to John the Baptist, that he had spoke against the sitting king, an Edomite, Herod, uh, John was able to gain access to the king and he flat out told him, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herod um, divorced his wife that he could marry his brother Philip's wife. And obviously, Philip and Herodias got divorced as well. And so now Herod and Herodias are married and uh, under the law, I guess, technically married. But John was bringing them back to the word of God. This is not lawful. Now, Herod put up with John because the Bible tells us that 
When he heard John speak, he did many good things because of the message that he spoke. But Herod's wife hated John and convinced him to be put in jail. Ultimately, we know that John was beheaded, and perhaps they're trying to trap Jesus in a similar trap that got John killed, that if they could get Jesus to speak about divorce, maybe it would be enough to fuel the killing of Jesus as well. I don't know the motives behind this question, but Jesus didn't go where they wanted him to go. They wanted him to argue with them from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus didn't go there. He will mention it, but initially he went back to the beginning. And I think that's, well, very wise for all of us when dealing with opposition to make sure that uh, we're not allowed to be sucked down into someone's rabbit trails. Uh, stay on the firm foundation of the Word of God if you are able. If you're not able and you need time, just don't go down the argument with them, saying, I, I just I don't have an opinion. I, I would need to research that. That's a good question. Let me get back to you. Just don't go down the trail if you're not able. But it's how we learn, by contending with others, by having questions and answers and um, having legitimate debate. This was not legitimate debate. So Deuteronomy 24.1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So the debate that rose up at their time was, What did Moses mean? by he has found some uncleanness in her. And so there were two basic school of thoughts that they were trying to pull Jesus into. Rabbi Hillel would interpret these words to say that just about anything was suitable for divorce. Whatever the husband felt, and by the way, this is the husband divorcing the wife. The wife couldn't divorce the husband, so it only went one direction in their day and age. But... Anything was suitable. You just, whatever you felt like could be suitable, according to Rabbi Hillel. But Rabbi Shammai, he came closer where he said the something unsuitable, something morally indecent, like maybe discovering that your wife after you married her was not actually a virgin or she committed adultery to you, that these would constitute the grounds of breaking the marriage. But rather than getting sucked into that debate, what they were trying to do to Jesus, he took him back to the beginning. He took him back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Where in Genesis 1, 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Jesus mentioned, <laughs> in the beginning, it was not so. And he went on to mention that he made them male and female. Now, that in itself could be a topic of discussion today because our culture no longer identifies with that. They don't understand it. Um, and so I guess we don't even have to today talk about the issue of marriage and still use Genesis 127 
And when someone wants to debate you, and by the way, I just signed up. I'm in school. I take a class every semester. Uh, when I'm the summer of uh, family camp 2025, it'll be a great celebration because I should have graduated. Then the class will be finally be over. And I mean, this has been going on. It will be 10 years. So I, I'm done, ready to be done, but I'm not done. But I've been taking these classes for 10 years and uh, just signed up yesterday as we start a new semester. And one of my main papers I have to write is on the LGBTQ um, debate that's going on in our culture right now. So I'm going to get thick in it. And I can tell you that as a believer, Genesis 127 is a key. From the beginning, it was not so. And there's a lot of other things we could argue from there. But that's a good foundational place to start. Jesus took him back to that. And then he also took him to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, or as I like the King James, cleave to his wife, leaving cleave, and they shall become one flesh. So a good marriage is found when we leave and cleave. And the Hebrew word translated as join means to cling to, to stick to, to stay close to. And it speaks about a change in relationship, no longer clinging to mom and dad or someone else in your life, but you're clinging to your spouse. The husband and wife leave and cleave. They are joined together. And in this becoming one flesh, they are considered as one. They have no separate or independent rights, although our world wants to teach differently. But we join together for the betterment of being married and for a family as well. And I would say for society. And again, the marriage has been breaking down in our society. And we watch at the same time society breaking down. Because no longer are we willing to leave and cleave. So Jesus quoted from Genesis, and then he added in verse 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so they said to him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And Jesus acknowledged to them in verse 8, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, he takes it back to the beginning again. From the beginning, it was not so. And then Jesus added, Except in the case of sexual immorality, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who has been divorced commits adultery. So again, I, I say that we are taking all of this, and they're referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses recognized divorce but did not necessarily institute it. But it was because of the desire of their hearts. Their hearts were turning hard. He wanted to, in Deuteronomy 24, 4, it tells us, he kept Israel from bringing sin on the land. So that for Moses, from his perspective, he was trying to prevent Israel from bringing sin into their nation by allowing these divorces. Um, but it was really, the sin was already there. The hardness of their hearts already tells us that the sin was already there. So Jesus gave that one ex exception. 
except for sexual immorality. Now, divorce continues to be highly debated, and, and God can work miracles, even with a couple who seem to be in a hopeless situation. When the husband and wife wholly give their hearts over to the will of God for their lives as individuals, as a couple, God can work in their behalf. God can restore a marriage that has been broken. On the other hand, there are those where reconciliation is no longer an option. I remember a pastor who, before he became a pastor, had gotten into divorce, had remarried, felt the call of God upon his life, was pastoring a rather large church, and people would continue to send him emails and tell him that he should divorce his second wife to remarry his first wife because the second marriage is not recognized in in God's eyes, and so you got to go back to the first. And it's like, okay, create more issue. Um, I don't know if we have to take it that far back. I think God can work miracles in the lives of those individually who have already suffered through a divorce, bring healing and wholeness in their soul. And so we need to look to the Lord and His wisdom in those situations. So the disciples hear this in verse verses 10 through 12. And they think, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And Jesus went on to talk about a little bit of that. To not to marry would mean that you would become celibate or eunuch. And he talked about eunuchs of their days who uh, we are accustomed to looking at the eunuchs when we read about history of kings who had harems and many wives like Solomon who had... uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines, a 1,000 women. That's even mind-blowing. But um, the eunuchs, they would be made that way, castrated, that uh, they would watch over the harem. And so that's what he means by eunuchs who were made that way by men, others who were born unable to produce, or those who have chose the lifestyle. Paul seems to be one, after he came to faith, in Jesus Christ seemed to be one to choose that lifestyle. And uh, he said in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it's, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. A very similar sense of what Jesus is saying. Not all can accept this. The disciples said, if this is the case, better not to marry. And Jesus said, uh, not as easy as you think. I mean, you're either born that way naturally, made that way by man, or God does something in your life that makes you that way. But for those who cannot abstain and live a celibate life, better to marry. Let each man and each woman each man have his own wife each woman have her own husband so for Paul it seems that he felt that celibacy was the best policy and if we look at Paul and it doesn't tell us but he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees Pharisees um, to be able to become a Pharisee you had to have a wife and you have to have had to bear a child and so Historically, we don't read about Paul being married, but it is assumed by some of his wording when he talks about Peter takes his own wife with him on the missionary trip. Why not us? Um, he's referring to the fact that he was, it seems, to be unmarried at one point, 
But there was a point where his wife must have died that he just lived for Christ. He was able to accept that lifestyle. He said, it's not for everyone. Jesus said, it's not for everyone. So whether we're married or single, we are to honor God with our lives and live for his glory. That is for everyone. Now, if we're going in order, I just want you to know that Matthew's Gospel verses... uh, Actually, I taught it from Mark's Gospel, but here in Matthew is where we're at right now. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. I actually picked this up in November. And I did it because I didn't want to get into the account of... um, I was kind of slowing down the teaching a little bit. And I didn't want to get into the rich young ruler. And so I kind of flipped a little bit. So I've done this. And if you want to search for it, you can look for it online. And we talked about from November 19th, Lesson 67. It was titled Perseverance, Pride, and Praise. And it was under point three that we talked about praising the little children. And that's from Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. So I purposely put these out of order, but it was a time constraint that I, I chose to do that in that particular message. Now here we get to the rich young ruler. It is found in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I love Luke's account because he gives us a couple of exclusives that the other Gospel writers do not give. One is that he tells us that Jesus looked at the young man with love, looked at him and loved him. And so Jesus, in dealing with the rich young ruler, was not rebuking him. I put this in the pastor's pen But he loved him. And so I always love, if I have a choice of where to teach this passage from, right now it's Mark chapter 10. And I'll go ahead and get over to Mark 10 and we'll read the context and continue on in our chronological journey. Mark 10, picking up in verse 17. I'm still trying to get there. And we'll take it down to verse 22. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions." And so Mark gives us a couple of exclusives. I just read them both. The one I've already shared with you. I'll share the other with you in a moment. But first of all, that Jesus loved him. So Jesus was not rebuking. He was showing him what he truly lacked. Now, I was reading that and I was thinking to myself and to all of us, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't require from us the things that we lacked before we could come to faith? I'd rather as the Lord offers it, come to life-saving faith in Jesus Christ, and then he can work on those issues with us. 
Because if we have to work on them on our own, we'll never succeed. And this was the case with the rich young ruler. So he came seeking eternal life. As we read there in verse 17, he came running to Jesus. He called him a good teacher. And he asked what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And so their culture of their day taught that the rich did not run. And so this was kind of something that was out of their culture. He adds also, Luke adds that he was a ruler. So he was someone who had authority, had position, he had wealth, and running was nothing that they would do. Not like, you know, I don't know if they had the... uh craze that we have in our world of being in shape and you know we think about the movie stars the actors the people who are in real good shape for the most part and there's like the things i did to get my body to look like this and it's like yeah you hire a personal assistant you work on it like three or four or five hours a day Uh, we have to work Uh, we can't do those things we have to live life and so we can't be like you it's an impossibility But it does give us, so he was rich, he was a ruler, rich and rulers didn't run, but it gives us a sense of urgency in his question. I think it was a legitimate question. I think that's why Mark told us that Jesus loved him. He was sincere in this, not like the Pharisees who were trying to test or trap Jesus as we've just previously learned about. But this man was sincere in his question. Also, he knelt and... uh, How many people have you ever knelt before in your life? This man knelt before Jesus. So it shows the humility that he also had. In 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, it tells us, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. So Jesus met him in a place where this man had a great urgency, but it was an urgent humility. He was willing to come and to cast his care upon Jesus, to ask Jesus. Now, he called Jesus good teacher, and Jesus dealt with that issue of good. And I think that's a good issue for us to deal with today as well. One of the lexicons said of this, that the man was saying that Jesus was the perfect of God. Jesus responded and said, no one is good but God. Now, the man wasn't wrong because Jesus was God, but this man probably didn't know that. But here we find for Jesus, for this man to receive the kingdom of God, He had just taught with the little children that we didn't go through that I looked at in November 19th. Um, He had just taught what it takes to come into the kingdom of heaven. And Mark 10, 15, it tells us, Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. So Jesus had just taught. I don't know if this man heard the teaching or not, but the very next passage The man is asking, what must I do? Uh, You got to come as a child. I just taught this. Weren't you listening? A parent might say to their own children sometimes, come as a little child. 
But no longer being a child, the young man felt that it was necessary. There's something that I must do to inherit eternal life. And this is a mistake that many people make, thinking that eternal life can be earned through good works. And the Bible clearly tells us in Romans 3.12, they have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible teaches us without Christ, we would have no hope. So Jesus in verses 18 dealt with that issue of why do you call me good, referred him to God being the only good one, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. He is good, and he is God. But this rich young ruler, I don't think he actually knew that. He knew him as a teacher, but not as the Son of God. He made no such acknowledgement at this point that we read of. But this does show that he believed, like many in our world today, that we can be good apart from God. Several years ago, and I think it was in the late 90s, it started in Europe. It made its way over to the United States. They even had a campaign in Chicago, in this area and other parts of the United States, of atheists having billboards and on the sides of buses saying, you can be good without God. And so they were trying to say that, Goodness or morality can be found without God. In the late 80s and 90s, Lily and I were serving at a church where I was a youth pastor and over in Zion, Illinois, and I grew up near the roller skating rink that doesn't exist anymore. But if you need to get your gun card, you can go to that same building and learn how to shoot now. But I learned how to skate there. Um, have a lot of fun memories and uh We, for a while, for about two years, hosted a Christian skate night, um, probably from September, we learned. So it ended up being from September, uh, kind of during the school year, September to April or May, and then cut it off for the summer and start over again. And it was the second Saturday, and we'd have a Christian skate night, and I hired a DJ. Uh, We had games, we had prizes, and it got to a point to where about 125 were averaging on our skate night. And so I would do questionnaires quite often. And the one question I remember the most from there, if you were to die tonight and go to stand before God, and uh, he asked why you should be allowed to go into heaven, uh, what would you respond? And the number one answer, always the number one answer, was because I'm good. Rarely did I get, because I've accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life, and I did get those answers sometimes. It was a Christian skate night. You would hope that some of the believers would be able to answer correctly. Number one answer, because I'm good. And we live in a world that believes that morality comes either from culture, from our parents, from the government, from the church, but not from God. We can be good without God, is what the atheists were trying to teach. But it's a standard that we live by. And this young man is asking, what good thing must I do? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And yet when we speak about being good, God compares our sinfulness to his sinlessness, our unrighteousness to his righteousness, our injustices to his justice. The Bible tells us in 
Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. This I say, therefore, I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of the, their hearts. And today we live in a society, we've seen it over the last several years, especially that right now that which we know in our hearts, according to God's word, is good, is being called evil. And those things that we know in our hearts, according to God's word, that are evil, are being called good in our society. Why? Because of their ignorance and the blindness of their heart. It goes back to Jesus talking about the issue of divorce because of hardness of heart. That's always the issue. What still do I lack, he asked. This young man had probably been bar mitzvahed at the age of 13. That's tradition. But that bar mitzvah means that the father is saying that my son is accountable to God for himself. Now, up to that time, the father was accountable to his children until their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, depending on if you're male or female, um, you are accountable before God. That's what it means. You come to that place where now I am accountable to God for my own sin. And now the rich young ruler is perhaps referring back to him being accountable. He's thinking, though I followed, which we learn in the very next verse, and when Jesus said, you know the commandments, and he rehearses six of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He rehearses six of the Ten Commandments, and the young man responded by saying, all these things I've done from my youth. I've done this, but it tells us by his question that something still was lacking. Now, I have a hard time believing that he was perfect in all six of these, and Jesus, by the way, didn't mention four, and they all relate to God. He didn't mention those at all. But I have a hard time believing that he was perfect in all of these. But the law is important. The Word of God is important. James 2, 10 and 11 tells us that if we keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So you know what it says. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. But if you commit adultery, but... If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So to break one point of the law is breaking it all. Galatians 3.24, Paul teaches us that the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. There's a purpose for the law, and the law has no doubt shown this young man that there was something lacking, something missing. In a sense, the law may have been doing its job. What thing do I lack? I've been keeping all these things, but I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. You know, John 6, 46, Jesus said, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So Jesus looked at him, verse 21, loved him. That's a Mark exclusive, Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Luke don't tell us of Jesus loving him. And he said, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
come, and another Mark exclusive, take up your cross. So Matthew and Luke didn't tell us of that. Take up your cross and follow me. So here we learn that he had great riches. He was challenged. This is what it would take if you were able to, which you are not. But if you were able to, this is what it would take. You'd have to sell everything. But he gave him that challenge with a promise. You sell it all. You follow me. Take up your cross. You will have riches in heaven. So he gave him a promise that he was not able to live up to. And that's true of all of us. Apart from Christ, we cannot obtain salvation. It is an impossibility. Even if we were able to physically live according to the law, it does not deal with our inherent sin nature that we picked up from the fall from Adam and Eve that has uh, been with humanity since that time forward. So we can try to do the best that we can do in our flesh, but we can't remove the spots. Maybe we can remove some of the blemishes, but apart from Christ, we have no hope. But Jesus looked at him. He loved him. And it reminded me of that old children's song, very true, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. So if you wish to be perfect, he gave him a challenge, but he was unable to live up to it. He gave him a challenge with a promise of treasures in heaven. And Jesus even challenges us as a church in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So he tells him, take up your cross, come and follow me. So when Jesus took up the cross, it was a full display of his commitment to do the will of the Father. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39. Oh, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was saying, Father, if salvation can come to humanity in any other way other than me needing to go to the cross, let it be so. But not my my will, but what you will. The same is true of those who believe in Jesus. We must first take up the cross, meaning that we are fully committed to the will of the Father in our lives while following the Lamb of God who paid the price of our sins upon the cross. It is through receiving the forgiveness of Christ that we can truly follow God. But the young man, hearing these words, verse 22 went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus knew. Jesus knows. Jesus knew for this young man exactly what was holding him back. It was his possessions. And Jesus knows in each of our lives the things that are holding us back. And only Jesus can bring that resolve in our lives that we can wholly commit ourselves to him. Trusting in riches in 1 Peter 6, 1 Timothy 6, sorry, 1 Timothy 6, 
17 through 19, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. And there are many who are still believing that their good works will get them to heaven, but it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. Only through Jesus can we find this true life here on earth and also in heaven. So again, the disciples hearing this, they asked, and we're going to go over to Luke's gospel to close out our teaching today. Luke chapter 18. They asked Jesus because their culture taught them that the rich were blessed by God. And so they would say that if you're rich, God's blessing you, you're in God's favor. And so this kind of went against the teaching of their culture, not against the word of God, but against the teaching of their culture. That's always dangerous. We often can find that we go against the teaching of God's word when we uh, try to connect the culture to understand it without truly just looking at the word and what the word says itself. So he says, picking up in verse 24, when Jesus saw that the man went away sorrowful, I found this interesting, verse 23, the young man went away sorrowful, and then Jesus became very sorrowful in verse 24. And he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who have heard it said, who then can be saved? And he said, the thing which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left all and follow you. And so he said, as surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house, parents, brothers, wife, children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more the present time and in the age to come everlasting life. So the disciples... The other gospel writers tell us they're shocked by this. Who then can be saved? But Jesus also being sorrowful because of the man walking away. It really speaks about, have you ever had a love for someone and see them go off doing the wrong thing, how it breaks your heart? That's kind of the situation we have here with Jesus. He became sorrowful because of the love he had for this young man, because of the love that he has for us all. And then he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus did not say that the rich could not get to heaven. He just said it's a difficult path. Now, the needle's eye, my dad was a pastor. And uh, probably only a few of the illustrations that he gave that I, I just remember. And sorry, Dad. <laughs> You got this one wrong, but I remember it. And many had gotten this one wrong. And you probably heard it yourself as well about the needle's eye. Being a small gate in a city such as Jerusalem, when they would close the gates to protect the city at night, 
they would not allow anyone to enter or go through those gates. Again, they wouldn't reopen them until the morning, but they had a smaller gate that they called the needle's eye, through which people could come and go. And uh, historic, historic, historians now look back at that and they say, we haven't discovered the needle's eye gate in any of these cities, so we're not quite sure this is true. But this is kind of how my dad would tell this. He would talk about, and if you understand, and I'll, I'll help you understand it if not, um, how it goes against the context of the whole passage. He would talk about the needle's eye being that smaller gate and then the outer gate being closed, and from time to time, caravans would show up late to the city, and if they wanted to come into the protection of the city, then they would have to strip their goods from the animals and bring them in. Uh, through the smaller gate. And so the caravan itself could not enter into the city. But if you're able to strip it down, you could bring the goods into the city to the protection of the city. And then the camel related to the needle's eye. Dad would connect it this way because the camel was too tall to walk through the gate. The one who would uh, care for this camel would have to not only strip the goods off its back, but force the camel on its knees to crawl through the gate to come into the city. This way, he would enter into the safety of the city. Now, we live in a world that has many ways, like the rich young ruler. What good thing must I do? What do I need to strip away? And there are people who have crawled on their knees until they have bled trying to gain a righteous standing before God. But it totally goes against the context of the passage. If there was any good thing that we could do, then the Lord would say, this is what you need to do. I believe that Jesus wasn't talking about a needle's eye. In fact, if he was talking about the needle's eye and there was such a gate in Jerusalem, then the disciples said, oh yeah, I understand. We have to strip everything down, crawl on our knees, and uh, we'll find peace with God. But their response to Jesus saying, it would be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, and they were thinking of a sewing needle. And they were thinking of how small the eye of a snowing, sewing needle is and how large a camel is. According to Gail Irwin, one of the Calvary Chapel pastors at large, he said a camel can go through an eye of a needle, but he'd be all strung out by the time he got through there. <laughs> so not an impossible. It'd be a mess. Jesus was saying, this is a physical impossibility. And they responded, who then can be saved? If it's impossible, who can be saved? And the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Verse 27. Several years ago now, the movie The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock uh, in the movie itself, one of the lead characters was going to a Christian school, and as he was walking to the gate of this Christian school that actually exists, and I tried to look up the real gate um, and the words that they might have on it, but on the gate in the movie, as he's walking and he pauses and he looks up, and they actually took two letters out of 
this verse, verse 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. All they did was remove two letters. And when the character of this movie looked up and he read, the things that are possible with men are possible with God. All they did was remove the I and the M. And I've looked the movie up to make sure I saw what I saw. And I did see. All they did was take away the word impossible to read possible. People, it's possible with you. But Jesus is saying, no, not possible with you. Only possible with God. We live in a world that likes to teach that it's possible. I can be good and go to heaven apart from God. And Jesus said, who then can be saved? They asked, and Jesus said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Only with God. 1 John 5.11, this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Only with God, only with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, is it possible to enter into eternal life. And the rich young ruler asked, good teacher, what Good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life. And for those who are here and those who may be listening online, I haven't done this in a while, but the ABCs of salvation, this is a path, an easy way for all of us to understand what makes the impossible possible. First, the A represents admit. We need to admit to God that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must admit to God that we are sinners. The B stands for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross. In his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And receive that salvation. In Romans 5.8 it tells us, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the C is confess. Confess your faith in Jesus and share your faith with others. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto salvation, and with the mouth a confession is made unto salvation. I read that wrong. Because I wasn't reading... I'll read it this time. <laughs> Romans 10.10 10. With the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13 Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you're watching online, maybe you're going to see this at another time uh, through one of the social media pages or through our church's website and you have questions regarding salvation, through, please contact us at cclv at comcast.net. I haven't done this in a long time, but if this is you and you're watching or you're hearing this at a later date, please connect with us. You can do it through our church's website. You can email us at cclv at comcast.net. If you're here, please come forward and pray with Pastor Kevin as we close out in this last song. Let's go ahead and stand and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us here today. And we pray, Lord, that we would heed the things, foundational things, Lord, in your word, upon which we can build our lives. 
And the very first step of that building is our salvation through faith in you alone. And Lord, if there are those who do not know you as Savior, I pray that they would pray to receive you as their Savior this day. And Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior, help us build upon that foundation, that firm foundation of faith that's founded upon the work that you did through your sacrifice upon the cross, your death, burial, and resurrection. We pray, pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.